I want you to put your finger in Hebrews 2 and then go to Psalm 8 as well. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 2, which is what we'll be studying today, but then turn to Psalm 8. We'll start there. Hebrews chapter 2 and Psalm 8. All right. The lady in the front row has it, so we're going. <laughs> Let's start reading in Psalm 8. Uh, this psalm is entitled, The Lord's Glory and Man's Dignity. It was a psalm written by King David. Start reading in verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him just a little lower than God. Stop right there for a moment. That word God in the Hebrew is Elohim. It could be translated God or heavenly beings or angels, okay? It works in all those ways. Thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we agree with the psalmist that your name is majestic, your name is excellent, and you are great and greatly to be praised, Lord. And we ask that in our midst today, you would increase for each one that's come here today. We're here because we need you, King Jesus. We either need you initially, we don't have a relationship with you, or we just want more of you in our lives. Whatever it is, we're here to be with you. So Lord, don't let it be anything else. If our hearts are distracted, some of us don't have seats, it's too full in here. Um, whatever's going on, we ask the Holy Spirit, you'd snap our hearts and minds to attention, and we'd be squarely focused on the person of Jesus and the work of the cross. And Lord, give us a fresh revelation and a deeper understanding of the wonders of the cross today, the glorious salvation that you've given us. Don't let us miss these truths that we'll hear today and enliven our heart to them, Lord. If there's any way that we're not living in a way that's representative of the salvation that we have, Holy Spirit, come and convict us today. Show us where we're erring. We want to walk in obedience to you. We want to be closer to you. We want to follow you. We want to be your faithful representatives and subjects of your kingdom. So King Jesus, rule and reign here. We exalt you. We announce together that it's all about you. You are the senior pastor of this church, and we're thankful that you're going to teach us now in your word. We believe it to be living and active and inerrant and totally right on. Teach us now, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, the reason that we read Psalm 8, that beautiful psalm, is because the author of Hebrews is going to be quoting it in chapter 2 in the text that we'll get there today. But I want to remind us, as we've gotten to Hebrews chapter 2, that what's happening in this chapter initially, in the first four verses, is we have been warned against drifting and neglecting. 
We've been warned against drifting from the things that we have heard about Jesus Christ and neglecting our salvation. And we've been talking about the fact that drifting is dangerous, that drifting can lead to disbelief and disbelief apostasy, and that apostasy can lead to spiritual shipwreck. And it says there in verse 3, we've talked about last couple weeks, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We must understand that by the design of God, anytime we neglect something, it leads to ruin and to death. If you have something as simple as a garden and you neglect it, that garden will die. Your automobile, if you neglect your automobile, it eventually will die. If you neglect your house, it's going to be ruined. It's going to fall apart. If you neglect your health, you're going to have problems. If you neglect your marriage, you're going to have big problems. If you neglect your kids, you're in trouble. And if you neglect your salvation, it can lead to shipwreck. And so we've been warned in light of who Jesus is and the wonderful things that he's done for us to pay much closer attention than we've ever done before, lest we drift away from those things. Now, the rest of the chapter turns the corner. And the rest of chapter 2 deals with the benefits of the cross. The writer of the, author of Hebrew, or the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to explain to us in the rest of the chapter some of the benefits of the cross of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of humanity. And he's going to do this to encourage us to continue in our salvation. He's once again showing us that there's nothing better than life with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so he's going to explain to us some of the benefits of the cross. We're going to be studying the rest of this chapter for the next four weeks, including this week. And so here's the four-part outline that we'll be covering over these weeks. Today we're going to look at the fact that for humanity, Jesus has recaptured our lost destiny. Jesus has recaptured our lost destiny. Next week we'll look at the fact that Jesus has recovered our lost unity. The following week... The fact that Jesus has released us from satanic bondage. Somebody say amen. And the following week, we'll finish the chapter by looking at the fact that Jesus restores us in times of failure. Now, I want us to read the verses that we're going to cover today, and that's verses 5 through 9 of Hebrews 2. Let's look at those. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. It says... For God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, and here comes a quote of Psalm 8, what is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and has appointed him over the works of thy hands. That last part of verse 7 for some of you, it's in your Bible. For some of you, it's not. If you have the NIV or the New Living Translation, the last part, and has appointed him over the works of thy hands, isn't there. If you have the King James or the New King James or the New American Standard, it is there. The reason being, two of the ancient manuscripts, of which we have thousands, uh, didn't have that phrase in it, the ancient manuscripts of the book of Hebrews. And so translators, as they're using various manuscripts to translate the New Testament from Greek into English, had to make the decision, do we think that's original or not? Do we include it or not? And some of the translators, King James, New American Standard, said yes. Others didn't. Either way, 
it is in that portion, is in Psalm 8. It's in verse 7. So it's still in the flow of thought and logic, and it's still part of the quote. So your Bible's cool. You're all right. Either way, we're good. Next verse. Verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his, that is man's feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what we have here is the author of Hebrews revealing to us, reminding us of our destiny that humanity has a certain destiny. And when humanity fell, we lost right relationship with God and we lost the meaning to existence. We lost the right relationship with God and the meaning to our existence. And so these verses are reminding us about and teaching us concerning what man's intended destiny is, how and why it was lost, and how it can be recovered through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the first point that I mentioned. Jesus recaptured our lost destiny. That's the topic for today. Very simply, a component of man's destiny is that we would rule over creation. One component of man's destiny, as ordained by God, is that we would rule over creation in a good Godly right sense, not an abusive, uh, consumeristic, anti-environmental, abusive animal sense. That's not what we're talking about. In a good, godly, as intended by God sense, part of man's destiny is that God made us to rule over creation with him. That means that as humans, we should realize the importance of creation care. Some people call it environmentalism. I call it creation care. And we should recognize that it is God's intended purpose that we, humanity, would live in harmony with the rest of God's creation. God put it this way in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them, that is man, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there is man's destiny revealed. Man's destiny revealed. And the author of Hebrews, when he quotes Psalm 8, is reminding us of how wonderful a fact that is. David, when he wrote Psalm 8, was in awe of the fact that God wants to use us in governing and overseeing his creation. I mean, God doesn't have to use us for anything. If I was God, I wouldn't use you. I wouldn't use me. But aren't you thankful I'm not God? God is so kind. God is so wonderful. And he created all things, and then he created man and gave man loving dominion over creation. And he wants to involve us in his overall oversight of the earth. He wants to involve us in that. 
And David and Psalm 8 rejoices over that fact that the glorious Lord of heaven, whose name is majestic, should graciously use people in the earth's domain. And so this passage, Psalm 8, and the quotation hereof in Hebrews 2, teaches the dignity of mankind as God's representative on earth. The dignity of mankind as God's representative on earth. You could hear the, the awe in the, in the voice of the psalmist, even as we read it in Hebrews 2, again, verse 6. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands, and you've put all things in subjection under his feet. It's awesome that God wants to use us in that way. And that was God's intended purpose in creating man, at least one of them. The problem is that this privilege was lost because of man's rebellion to God. This privilege, this ordained position was lost because of man's rebellion to God. The fact that things are not as they should be between humanity and creation is evidenced by the fact that sharks bite you and bees sting you. The fact that sharks bite and bees sting means that man is not ruling over creation. There has been a reversal in God's chain of command as he ordained it. Things have gone awry. A rhinoceros will charge you. This is not the way God intended it to be. And it says that, that we don't see it this way in Hebrews chapter 2, the second part of verse 8. It says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we don't see yet all things subjected to him. We don't see the things the way they ought to be because we're living in a world conditioned by the fall. We are living in a world that is suffering the consequences of man's rebellion against God. God said there was going to be consequences when man rebelled. We read in Genesis chapter 3, a few verses here. I'll read them to you. They're on the PowerPoint. Then God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. You see, when humanity sinned in the garden, rebelled against God, he lost his place of dominion that was given to him by God. He immediately lost the position that God intended him to fulfill, and creation became corrupt. Creation became corrupt. Thorns and thistles would come forth from the land, and man would have to work much harder than God intended him for the land to be fruitful at all. There would always be conflict and a lack of harmony in creation because of the rebellion of man. And so what we see then is that man's revealed destiny now becomes restricted by sin. Man's revealed destiny is now restricted by sin. And because of the original sin, all of mankind and creation is in a fallen state, in a fallen position. 
not what God intended. And we do not currently see, as verse 8 says in front of us, the earth subject to man. It was originally meant that we would be able to reap from the earth and harvest without all that labor. That there would always be enough food to, inhabit, to uh, feed everybody that would ever inhabit the earth. That there would never be a lack. And we were meant to enjoy everything on earth without danger, without worry, without perversion, without brokenness. We were meant to enjoy everything that God made and we were meant to live in harmony with God, with one another, and with the rest of creation. But because of the fall of man, there has been a reversal of the chain of command. And now the earth and earthly things seem to rule us. The earth and earthly things seem to rule us and have a degree of dominion in our lives. And we, humanity, find ourselves in rebellion to and separated from God. It gets worse. Because man fell to the temptation of Satan, that position of ruling in the world in harmony and concert with God was forfeited to Satan, who now rules the world in conflict with God. Because man fell to the temptations of Satan, that position of ruling the world in harmony and concert with God was forfeited to Satan, who now rules the world in conflict with God. Satan spoke about the fact that he is the ruler of this inhabited world in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, at the temptation of Jesus. And he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, look, all the world, all its domain and its glory, it has been handed over to me, and I could give it to whomever I wish. And Satan did, or the Lord didn't say that Satan erred in saying that. Humanity handed dominion over the inhabited earth to Satan when they followed him and rebelled against God. And so for that reason, passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, call Satan the God of this world. Lowercase g, but the God or the ruler of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, calls him the power of the prince of the air, or the prince of the power of the air, excuse me. And so Satan is seen as a God of this world, the prince of this world, and 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, Satan at this time rules the earth. Man forfeited it to him and his position. And so now Satan and the earth and earthly things endeavor to rule over man. And when man lost his right position given by God and before God, man lost mastery over himself. And man then found himself enslaved to sin and earthly passions. Man lost mastery over himself, found himself enslaved to sin and earthly passions. And the right relationship with God and all of its benefits were lost. Man's revealed destiny is restricted by sin. And man finds himself in the unenviable position that everything that was initially created by God to be good and useful and friendly and in harmony has become hostile to man. The animal kingdom. So much of it is hostile to man unless it is forcibly tamed. 
The ground, if left alone, produces weeds and thistles and thorns instead of good things. The earth has extreme temperatures that make it hard for man to inhabit all the earth. We have poisonous plants and reptiles. We have earthquakes and tornadoes, floods and hurricanes. We have all sorts of diseases. And these are the results of the fall of man. Virtually everything God had given for man's good and blessing became his enemy. And man has been fighting a losing battle ever since. For millennia, man has found himself to be dying. And we are now discovering that the earth is dying along with us. John MacArthur explains the horror of this well in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. I'll just read an excerpt to you. He says, man is subject to the earth. He plants, but he's not sure who will reap. He builds cities and houses and dams and monuments, but they are all subject to destruction by lightning or earthquake or flood or fire or erosion or simply aging. Man lives in jeopardy every hour. Just at the height of professional achievement, his brain may develop a tumor and he becomes an imbecile. Just at the brink of athletic fame, he may be injured and become a helpless paralytic. He fights himself. He fights his fellow man. He fights the earth. Every day we read in here of the distress of nations, of the impossibility of agreement between statesmen in a world that languishes in political and social conflict, not to mention economic hardship, health hazards, and military threats. We hear the whine and pain from dumb animals and even see the struggle of trees and crops against disease and insects. Our many hospitals, doctors, medicines, pesticides, insurance companies, fire and police departments, funeral homes, they all bear testimony to the curse upon the earth. It was a horrific thing when man rebelled against God. Sin always has consequences. But the Bible speaks of a time when all things will be restored by Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of a time when the inhabitants of earth will be in right relationship to King Jesus. And those who dwell upon the face of the earth will be in right relationship with one another. And man will be in right relationship and in right dominion over creation and caring for creation. And all things will be in harmony under the kingship of Jesus Christ as was initially designed by God. Amen. Amen. Now, the book of Isaiah tells us what this time period, still yet future, will look like. Isaiah chapter 2 tells us that man and the earth and man's relation to God will be changed. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Yerushalayim, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's a beautiful promise. That's a beautiful promise. The Lord will be ruling and reigning all the earth, and all the inhabitants of the earth will want to go up and hear from the Lord and to praise the Lord together, and he will once and for all bring peace. Nobody has been able to broker peace. Wars increase exponentially in our world. Nobody is able to broker peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Only he can bring peace. It is interesting to me that outside the building for the United Nations in New York, the second part of Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 is written there huge on a wall. The second part. The second part which says, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. They've put that at the United Nations, but they did not put the first part which says God will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. Only God can bring peace to this world. Try as humanity may, United Nations, my eye. There is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. There is coming a day. And the Bible also teaches that in this day, man's relationship to animals will be changed as God intended. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. He won't eat other animals anymore. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. There is coming a day. There is coming a day. Even plant life will be changed. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 2. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. There is a coming time when because of the cross of Jesus Christ, no other reason, the cross of Jesus Christ by which humanity and creation are redeemed, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, things will be restored to the state in which God intended. There will be redemption. There will be renewal. There will be a righting of all the wrongs and a setting in correct place and order what God intended for humanity. That day is coming. Now it's called in the Bible the millennial kingdom. Millennium being a thousand. 
The millennial kingdom, that is the earthly reign of Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. It is an earthly reign. It is a literal reign. It is a physical reign. It is the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth, the millennial kingdom is. When we speak about the kingdom of God, we realize that it is both present and future. We realize that it is both spiritual and physical. We realize that the kingdom of God is both here and coming. And the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth will be the millennial kingdom. When things will be restored and creation set into the right order intended by God. And part of that right order is that we, humanity, would rule and reign with him. Now, when this takes place is at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. The Bible is emphatic about that. The Bible is explicit about that. If you don't believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, you do not have Christianity. That's a non-negotiable of the faith. You, you just simply cannot subtract it. It's in the Bible from the beginning to the end that Jesus Christ is coming again. He came once. He's coming again. And when Jesus comes again, he will establish his kingdom here on earth in the physical realm. When he came the first time, he established a kingdom. He said uh, to the Pharisees that day, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But remember, the kingdom is both here and future. It is both spiritual and physical. It is both now and later. And the ultimate fulfillment is at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he establishes a millennial kingdom and he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And the fact that we will have a part to play is explicit in Revelation chapter 20. I want you to turn there, please. Revelation chapter 20. Now, we're very familiar with Revelation chapter 19, aren't we? Because that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we've read through that. Remember, Cavallo Blanco, when Jesus comes back on the white horse, and then us on the little horse, he's behind him. Okay, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We remember that. Now we pick it up in verse 20 with the events immediately following. Revelation chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Thank you, Lord. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. That's another sermon. You could get it on our website. But during the millennial kingdom, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. You already know it's going to be good. You already know it's going to be a good time if Satan is bound. Verse 4, look at this. And I saw thrones, notice in the plural, I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Notice what it says. That Christians will reign with Christ for a thousand years. 
It pictures here the millennia, or the, excuse me, the tribulation saints that don't yield to the Antichrist and are killed for their faith, but it has in view, you read from the first part of the verse, all of Christians, that part of our destiny is to rule with Christ. And the millennial kingdom is when there is a restoration of things, a redemption of things, a reordering of things in the way that God intended. And so we will be reigning with Christ on earth at that time. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, the one spoken of in verse 4. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. The second death is ultimate judgment, the great white throne judgment spoken of later on in chapter 20, where people who are not saved by Jesus Christ, who denied him as their Lord and Savior, are judged for their sins. And the only option there is eternal separation from God, a place called hell. If you accept and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repent of your sins and ask him to forgive you according to his work on the cross, then you will not be judged for your sins. He paid the price for you. If you refuse that, you will stand before God on your own merit. And on the authority of the word of God, I tell you, you have no merit before him. Repent and ask Jesus to forgive you. And then it says, last phrase of verse 6, but they will be priests of God, speaking of us, and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there is coming this time, this millennial kingdom, this time of restoration, when we will rule and reign with him. I'm not sure all that that means. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about exactly what our roles will be. So we can only speculate. But the Bible takes it as a matter of fact. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That word judge is krino in the Greek. It means to rule, to govern, or to judge. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 2. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. For if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Revelation 2, 26. And to he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And Revelation 5.10, the church singing in heaven sings these words, and thou, speaking of Christ, has made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth. Jesus spoke about this fact in the gospels. He gave some parables that seem to teach that the degree to which we are faithful with that which God has entrusted us with in this life will determine our role in the millennial kingdom. How faithful we are with the, well, let's just think, the, the talents, the finances, the personality, the sphere of influence, the opportunity, how faithful we are with those things as subjects of King Christ in this life will determine our role in the millennial kingdom to what degree we rule and reign with him. He spoke about in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, right? And he gave us a parable of a man who's going away and he gave talents, which is a measure of money. We happen to have the same word in English for talent, but it's an old word for money. And he gave him money and said, look, do business with this until I come. He expected a return on his investment. 
Jesus expects that the talents, the life position, the gifts, the inclinations, the sphere of influence that he's given to us, he expects a return on the investment for his kingdom. Understand that? And then in Matthew 25, 21, toward the end of the parable, Jesus says this about the parable, and his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, Matthew 25 is in the context of end time. It follows the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is talking about the final things of the last days. And so he seems to be teaching that the degree to which we're faithful now will determine our role in the millennial kingdom. Same thing in uh, Luke chapter 19, where we have the parable of, uh, again, another measure of money there. And he says a similar thing in verse 17. He says, and he said to them, well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over 10 cities. So I don't know exactly what it means that we'll rule and reign with him, but it's got to be good. It's got to be cool. I mean, if that's not cool, then we're going to rule and reign with Jesus when he is physically present in Jerusalem as a king over all the earth, and we're his guys and girls working with him and for him. I don't know what cool is if that's not cool. That sounds like a good time, right? Go back to the book of Hebrews now as we finish up. Now, what puts us all in perspective and connects it all with the context of Hebrews is the thought of angels. Again, we saw angels brought up here in chapter 2, verse 5. And you'll remember uh, that from verse 4 through verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1, it was all about Christ's superiority over angels. That was a big point of the text, and we discussed all the reasons why that is. And now angels are brought up again in verse 5. And what connects to the thought is this, that angels do not have a ruling position in the millennial kingdom, okay? It's a different period. But they do seem to play a ruling authoritative position in the inhabited earth right now, both holy angels and fallen angels. The chief fallen angel is Satan who is called the ruler and the prince of this world in the New Testament. We already determined that. Jesus, in speaking about him in John 12, 31, says, Now judgment is upon this world, and the ruler of this world shall be cast out. 1 John 5, 19, again, says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I'm trying to establish the fact that fallen angels have a degree of power in the inhabited earth and authority and certainly influence. This is made explicit in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, meaning in the spiritual realm. Now, not only do fallen angels, a.k.a. demons, influence this world, but holy angels 
are assigned by God to have, be an influencing factor in this world and have a degree of authority. And so the fact that we have holy angels and falling angels both vying for authority in this world means that we have spiritual conflict. Some of you are saying, no, duh. Some of you say, really? Yeah. Spiritual conflict in the spiritual realm that is often manifest in the physical realm. There is a spiritual conflict that is as real as your butt in that seat today. <laughs> Excuse me. In Daniel chapter 10, we have Daniel praying and we have the messenger angel coming to deliver the message to him. And it says that the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece detained him. Speaking of angelic, fallen then, demonic authorities over those regions that didn't want the messenger angel to get through. And so there was a conflict that happened and it happened when Daniel started to pray. And then Michael, the archangel, comes to the rescue of the messenger angel, and the message gets through. And it's a message about the future of Israel, and the world course has changed. Very important stuff happens in the spiritual realm. So I'm simply saying this. In this day and age right now, angels play a role in influencing, ruling over, and governing creation. But man was supposed to play that role. He surrendered it when he fell to the schemes of Satan in the garden. Enter Jesus, born of a virgin, in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, teaching around the Galilee, walking on water, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes, in Jerusalem, teaching on the Temple Mount, beaten Mocked, scourged, spit upon, pulverized, crucified, risen from the dead three days later. The reason this took place was that Christ might recapture our lost destiny. The cross of Jesus Christ recaptures the lost destiny of humanity. And in the millennial kingdom then, angels will serve us, it appears. Don't get all uppity about that, no big deal, whatever. <laughs> but it talks about that fact in verse 14 of Hebrews 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are inherit salvation? And in verse 5 of chapter 2, God did not subject to angels the world to come, oikumene in the Greek inhabited earth, millennial kingdom. God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. The world to come is going to be subject to man under the authority and the leadership and the kingship of Jesus Christ. The Bible takes it as a matter of fact. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? And Revelation 3.21, again, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Jesus, big throne, us, little thrones. Just like Jesus had big horse. Okay. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The idea being of the book of Hebrews here is that if Christ is much greater than the angels and superior to the angels and the ordained order of humanity is that we would rule and reign with him, then we also, in that time, will be over the angels. 
No big deal, but it's got to be cool. <laughs> it's got to be a cool thing. But what we realize now is that we don't see things subject to humanity. We don't see it right now. Remember that our salvation is in three tenses. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. Thank you, Jesus. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. I can't wait. All of that was made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. At that moment, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that battle was won. All of those things were won for humanity through the work of Jesus. But our salvation unfolds as time progresses. So we don't see right now the facet, the component of our salvation, that all things are subject to us. We don't see it yet. And that's what verse 8 says here. For in subjecting all things to man, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And we would all testify that. That is absolutely true. It seems that just about everything is beyond our control. Our own kids, the weather, the seasons, animals, the tides, our own passions, international events, disasters, so on and so on. And the things that we see around us, increasing pollution of the planet, the spread of famine and disease and wars, the toll taken by drugs, accidents and tragedies, all of these tell the story of lost destiny. They tell the story of lost destiny. But almost with a shout, the author of Hebrews says in verse 9, but... We do see Jesus. We don't see yet that all things are in subject to us. We still see creation gone awry. We still see things not making sense. We still see heartache and heartbreak and maiming and all these horrible things. We don't see yet. The story's not over yet. But we do see Jesus, he says. Who has been made for a little while lower than the angels because of the, speaking of his humanity, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ died upon the cross that we might live. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life because we were unable to. Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, to plead the cause for us before the Father as his wounds bear testimony to our great salvation. And he is coming again to redeem those who are his. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. These things are accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ. This author explains it well. He says, Jesus is a last hope of a dying race. And that hope lies both in his deity and his humanity. Jesus alone as a human being managed to fulfill what was intended for us from the beginning. When we read the Gospels, we are forced to ask, who is this man who stills the winds and the waves with a single word? Who multiplies food at will? Who walks on the waves? Who summons fish to bring up coins at his command? Who dismisses disease with a touch? And who calls the dead back to life? Who is he? 
He is the last Adam, living and acting as God intended us to act when he made us in the beginning. It was the first Adam who plunged the race into bondage and limitation. It is the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who sets us free in soul and spirit so that we may now learn how to live in the ages to come when the resurrection gives us back a body fit for the conditions of that life. Amen. Amen. This is a component of the cross of Jesus Christ that we will be restored to that original place, that the destiny that was lost is recaptured by the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's good and it's awesome and it's beautiful. Do you know Jesus? You need Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you don't have him, life isn't making sense. No matter what you get, no matter how hard you run, no matter what you pursue, there is an emptiness, there is a void, there is a longing. It's because you were created to have a meaningful love relationship with God. But humanity erred and rebelled, and you as a member of humanity are in that fallen condition. But Jesus came and died upon the cross to restore humanity to right relationship. If you will but repent of your sins, confess that you are wrong, and turn from your sins, and tell a holy God that you are wrong, and that you're sorry, and believe in his death upon the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, and call upon him to save you, you shall be saved. And life is given new meaning. The meaning that was intended by God, that we would walk with him, know him, work with him, love him, experience him. That's what God has for you. It's all in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for these beautiful truths, these wonderful things. Lord, I ask that these truths wouldn't be lost on anybody in here. But you would help everybody to understand in this place that you are our great God and Savior. That there is no other Savior. Lord, that everyone in this place today would be saved. That you'd cause men and women to call upon you. To confess that they're sinners and that they're wrong and that you're right. And that they need your forgiveness and your life. Thank you for dying, Jesus, that we might live. We don't deserve it. You didn't have to do it. How great a salvation. And Lord, help us not to neglect so great a salvation. Keep us fiery and fervent. Keep us living for that day when our eyes will be fixed upon you and we shall be with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you, the precious sacrifice, made it possible for us to be reconciled to a holy God. Lord, if there's anything in our life that's hindering that, deal with it today by your spirit. Any waywardness, any rebellion, any arrogance, any distraction that ought not to be there, come Holy Spirit, deal with it in our hearts. We want to see Jesus, and we want more of Jesus. We want you to work more in our lives. Thank you that you're a great and merciful God. Have mercy on us today. Prayer team is here if you need help. Communion is here as well for those who are believers and want to remember the cross of Christ.